you cannot bullshit a man like Cameron Shane. And it's not just because this gentleman has two black belts and two separate martial arts and is working on his third. It's also because he has a razor sharp intellect, which he's used for years of very, very deep research. This was one of the most challenging conversations I've had since the founding of this podcast, amongst others because I waited for quite a while till the date came in and found out it had while in transit at an airport and just about made it on time for the recording session after an 18 hour flight, which is why I botched up the beginning. Sincere apologies again, Cameron. Thanks for being so cool about that. As you probably hear, we're not necessarily always on the same page with regards to how we approach certain themes in life, and that is exactly what I find is the most beautiful part of this conversation and the most inspiring. And now, without uh, any further ado, Cameron Chaney. Hello, fellow beings. Welcome to Tapasya Loading, a safe space to attempt honest, raw, and authentic conversation in homage to the ancient act of stoking a sacred fire. This episode's brought to you by everynowheremusic.com. Yep, you got that right. That's yours truly. So if this is an endeavor you'd like to support, please come and sign up for my newsletter at everynowheremusic.com. Every nowhere or every now here, depending on whichever way you prefer to look at it. Notoriously uh, spread out and sparse in its population. So, you know, you have places where access to the internet is <laughs> is uh, greater and worse so this well i got good news for you i'm in the world's most densely populated country currently i just landed in india a few hours back ah. but internet connections can be slightly tricky too but this to be fair was my bad i think i might have uh, pressed a wrong button on my mixer here. So anyway, if worst case scenario, <laughs> some of my voice might have been missing on that first part, but you're on, so we're good. Okay. Apologies, very good, very good. Apologies, though. Oh, gosh, please, of course. Um, one of the first thing one notices in your practice is, um, I'm not sure if we use this, the same nomenclature, but I'll use what I use, is your mastery of both the feminine and masculine energies in the way you practice your art. Is that something you've honed consciously or, or were you a natural from the very beginning? I think I was probably always connected to the feminine. I used to be mistaken for being gay or at least I was asked that question many times. Oh, I still get asked all the time. Yeah, yeah, many times in my life. You know, are, are you gay? And Which, of course, is it's, it's the presence of the feminine in my expression, which is not something that, of course, I, I consciously introduced, but rather something that spontaneously and naturally just arises for me because... I'm definitely my mother's son. Hmm. I'm very, very connected to my mother. So I think that I have somehow, gosh, I'm not sure the correct way. It's hard to explain it, uh, but for the record, uh, if that if it helps, my mother's my best friend, so I can very, very intimately relate to that feeling. Um, yeah, maybe that's what it, and maybe that's what it really comes down to. It's yeah. just the ability to relate to the feminine. Yeah is so complete and full yeah. that you don't reject any aspects of it. I think that 
the feminine energy and the masculine and the balance of the two is one of the great indicators of creativity and yeah. the, the ability to fully express creativity. Because if you think of it like a recipe, it has to have a bit of both because the masculine only is blind and the feminine only is deaf. And together they can see and hear for each other in a way they can't individually. Beautiful. You know, and I think that that's that's very important to understand just in as a human being, because I think the world is so full of people who are overdeveloped or underdeveloped in one area or another. Mm. So when they see people who are more balanced and something is attractive about that, you might even say there's an unconscious attraction or knowing I think that people have when they see a balanced human mm expressing them their themselves through art you know absolutely there's a lot of talk and this is something i really want to ask you because i can think of very few people who are as well qualified as you to really give us some serious input on this um toxic masculinity that term gets thrown around a lot for better for worse what's your take on this the first thing for me and i approach everything like this would be to have to really unpack and understand what toxic masculinity is. Yeah. It's a loaded term. And in this modern era, we love to take a term and conflate a million different qualities yep. and then arrive at some tagline we can throw at people. I don't think you can so easily characterize or, def or define or contain people's behavior with terms. People are unique and their experiences are unique. There's a certain place where experience overlaps and intersects so that there's a commonality that we can discuss. Because of course we'll use the term psychopath, you know, or narcissist. Mm. We go, oh, well, th this is what defines it. But if you really look at the definitions of narcissism, you can see yourself in plenty of it. Very much so. And you say to yourself, well, well gosh, I, I'm, am I a narcissist? I do, you know, I see this, and I, I've done that. I've seen, you know, behaved this way. I've thought that. And I think that it's the same with medical MD. If you go on the internet and type in a symptom, oh, yeah. <laughs> any one symptom you have, you could have cancer or the cold. <laughs> you know, I push back on these containers because they limit the conversation and they ultimately feel incredibly restrictive. And I feel that they so easily direct the conversation in a way that that misrepresents the complexity of people and of situations. So when you say, oh, that, that's a toxic male, she's a Karen. Well, don't get me wrong. There's certainly something about that behavior that we can identify as coming from fear. I mean, take a male who's learned to communicate with a female by, you know, catcalling. Yeah. You know, hey, baby, what's up, baby? What's up, pretty? What's up, beautiful? How you doing? This guy witnessed someone do this and thought that is a winning strategy. Like, this is how you do it. Yeah. <laughs> he was probably a kid and he witnessed some role model, some peer, 
someone who was influential in his life doing something and it was working for them. It worked for them somehow. And now they've adopted this strategy and they've never been taught any other strategies. Because as an example, where in our society do we educate young men in regard to relating to women? So true. And vice versa, women to men. We don't. What we do is we expect that that is the role of parents who are equally unskilled, equally clumsy about the process. So we leave these social skills up to the families and we then focus our education curriculum on developing workers. We're not going to develop great citizens. That's not going to be our focus. So our classes are going to be devoted to making this individual proficient in mathematics, in reading comprehension. We're not going to teach them to understand the world around them environmentally, socially. So if we spent 12 years educating an individual in regard to how they treat other humans, how they understand themselves and how they relate to the world around them, if we spent 12 years invested into that, like we do mathematics, mm. we would have a different society, but we don't. And what we see in our education system is exactly what we celebrate, what we value. You can always tell who a culture is through its art and through its education. Amen. So when you want to understand who we, who humans have become, you just look what we focus on for 12 years of these children's lives and and none of it in any way, shape or form is devoted to developing the character and shaping the consciousness of a human. It's all about shaping their ability to produce, Mm. to be able to contribute economically to society. That's our primary objective. And because that's our primary objective, we have then produced people who are incredibly competent at producing wealth, and they are completely bereft of ethics, self-awareness, <laughs> self-esteem. They just, they're lacking all the things that would make a person actually content. So I'm all for addressing the very foundation of our education systems all around the world and transforming them on a part that actually makes more sense. I'm completely with you on that. But I'd really be appreciative on your feedback on that teenager, that lost little boy who thinks catcalling a girl is his only option to communicate with her. What do we do with him? Well, you know, in all honesty, I come back to, <laughs> this is going to probably sound very Krishnamurti or, or... I'm down. You're on the right podcast for that. Yeah. <laughs> well, Krishnamurti probably had more hope than, say, um, Nasgarata, who... But two, my two greatest influences were... were uh, well, Nasgarata is probably my most important influence. Um, I am that, who is the, the, one of the... Yeah, I love that. Fascinating, yeah. fascinating thinkers, but... But Krishnamurti, uh, being more more popular and well known, his approach was far more optimistic than 
Nasgarata. Nasgarata was basically like, there's no reason to even ask that question hmm. because the answer to that question is it's really none of my business. It's not my place to fix people. It's not my place to see myself as my brother's keeper. I have no real responsibility in regard to adjusting other people who have not requested adjustment. What do we do with this little boy? I don't know. Is the little boy consensual in his desire to be adjusted? Or is the question, how do I force this individual to be different? Two very different questions. Yes. To answer the question as it was, as it was asked, um, nothing. I do nothing with that individual because if I punish that person for the behavior, maybe I cause some reflection or maybe I cause a deeper commitment to the behavior. Resistance and powers. Yes. What I observe is that we've created problems and then we try to create solutions to those problems, but we obviously do not actually change the problem making in itself. And the solution ends up becoming a new problem. Exactly. So we don't fix. Yeah. And that's just the same thing with, that I feel about the Me Too movement and Black Lives Matter. Um, you know, these, these movements, which I understand the core why. I get it. But as an example, what was Me Too? What was its primary message? Well, it didn't have one. It just became a platform for women to express their individual unfiltered frustrations with their experiences with men. And unfiltered meaning also unvetted. We didn't know how much of what was coming out was accurate. We didn't really take the time to do due diligence, to know both sides, to better understand. It's just this woman has a problem and we need to listen to her. And in listening to her, we somehow sacrifice the subject of her grievance as just collateral damage. So she could be mad at a man for something. His career is ruined. His standing in society is ruined. And we don't even know the circumstances. We don't know if it's how accurate, how truthful. We don't know anything about it, but we're going to give her a platform and we're going to silence him. That's absurd. And I mean, this is edgy ground we're walking on. Correct me if I'm wrong. It's like we're... Uh paying all this attention, a lot of attention, to the symptoms without actually addressing the disease. Is that what we're talking about here? Well, yes, and, and I'm talking about the, the, the fact that we're not going to... W w the Me Too, coming back around to the point I was making, which is Me Too didn't actually present any real solutions. It just wanted to be a place to allow grievances, basically just shout it out from a position sort of of rage, which is very, look, look, for a guy who really understands masculine and feminine in a really balanced way, well, let me tell you, the one thing about feminine that is very feminine is that it doesn't want necessarily to solve the problem. It wants to be heard. Mm. Mm. I mean, I can tell you this firsthand because I'm, you know, my wife, you know, there, there's plenty of moments that my wife has really has no interest in solving a problem. She just wants to express the frustration she has around it. So this is part of the feminine. It's, it's not as practical as the male. The male's approach is, you know, fix, fix the problem, which 
again, maybe the problem's not even fixable, but that's still the masculine linear approach. The whole idea of it's my role to fix something in the first place, you know, that is a questionable perspective in the first place, don't you think? Well, I think it's I think it's a I think it's the result of males having the pressure of fixing problems. It di it didn't get there by accident. Very well said. Thanks for that. I mean, my wife looks at when when some when something breaks, my wife doesn't start trying to fix it. She calls me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's just a fact. And my wife is incredibly smart. She's an intelligent. I know. Speaks five languages. Yeah. And, you know, is incredibly competent. But let me tell you this, when the tire on her bike doesn't want, she calls me to fix it. And, and not because she can't, but because that's what I do. Yeah. There is a reason that things become stereotypes. Yeah. Stereotype is not an accident. It is a pattern. It's a recognizable, reoccurring pattern. And then it becomes a stereotype. So, so stereotypes don't develop by accident. We don't make them up. We actually simply observe them. And then when we identify them in some way, then they become stereotypical. And that's what we say. Oh, but what we're basically saying is look at that pattern that is commonly occurring. And so, so whether you like it or not, it's, a, it's, a, it's science itself. And science doesn't make up patterns. It simply witnesses, it observes, and it notates. It just takes note of the pattern. Now, in society, we will call that a stereotype. But in science, you would call that a pattern. You would call that evidence. What role do you think does maturity play in all of this from the human aspect? Oh, a huge role. I mean, you can't expect a 20-year-old to be able to grasp the complexities of this that's a completely sexist statement. Oh my, well, it's like, yes. I mean, it's, it's when you listen to something, you listen with your experience. Hmm. And so the more experience you have, the more complex your understanding is, then the less you hear things in black and white, you hear them in the spectrum of your experience or through the spectrum. Mm. And when you're young and you have limited experience, you hear things in these very stark colors. So someone might hear me say, well, men fix things and women just want to be heard. They're like, well, I think that's absurd because I'm a woman and I, I fix things. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that it's common that the feminine is drawn towards certain patterns yeah. one of those patterns is nurturing exactly the masculine is not a nurturer exactly. but see if you but see if you assign a positive quality to it then someone's like yay and if you assign something that seems negative someone's like boo you yeah. know so it's like i can i can tell you as a as a female i can look at a female and say well you know you guys just you have a, an inclination towards nurturing oh well yeah that's true and then, but you have also an inclination towards non-cooperation. Boo. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but that's a pattern in the male and the female. Males are historically, biologically, we, 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 we're, we've, you know, the so social science has witnessed that males have an inclination towards cooperation, huh. which 
is how they can come together, form gangs, form militias, and do what they do. And females don't have an inclination toward that. They are not as cooperative in that way. Now, you can go deeper into that and you can you can peel more layers away as to why, because what at the end of the day, we do what serves us. People would like humans to be very definable and explainable thing like all other things that humans have created. But the thing that humans don't understand is that humans didn't make humans. We're, we're not a product of our imagination. Humans are animals. And because we're animals, people who understand humans best are people who study humans like they study animals. They back away from the narrative that we are some type of God and they embrace the reality that we are, in fact, just another animal on the planet, another species on the planet. And they just they just observe us and they observe our patterns and they don't have a bias about it. They don't there's nothing influencing the way that they're observing or witnessing that pattern so they can actually see what humans are inclined to do. Now, what are male humans inclined to do versus what are female humans inclined to do? And and a lot of people don't like to be placed in some type of container like that because they're like well how dare you try to reduce me to some some list of predictable qualities right that you can assign to a horse to you know a squirrel but it's like yes here's the tragic comedy of that you are we're just as predictable as a squirrel may i share a few thoughts on that i can't i can't resist sure feel like um there's a demographic out there who would be passionate about countering a lot of what we just talked about with the base of who defines what feminine and masculine is. And I think this might be a good time to clarify that we're talking about the energetic aspects to it on one level. There's that. And then the biological aspects to it and the patterns which encompass both, both the same. Correct me if I'm wrong at any point, please. And another thing I found to be slightly irksome is the bypassing of certain biological facts i mean it's one thing to identify with a certain gender and another to bypass the biological implications of my sex well yeah to unpack that for me i would start with your first statement we are talking about the energetic qualities of masculine and feminine right which is still a vague pseudoscience I mean, what, what does it even mean to say, just scientifically, what does it mean to say feminine energy? You know what I'm saying? I'm just being very practical right now, but what is sure. what exactly what exactly is masculine energy? How do we measure that? How do we witness that or observe that? Right. So what we're talking about, energy is matter in motion. Matter in motion can be traced to you and me. I'm the matter in motion. Right. Now, my matter is influenced by what we would call our genetics or our biology. So when we're talking about masculine energy, we're talking about 
the male matter in motion because when we're talking male matter in motion, then we have to ask, well, what identifies that matter as male? And now we're talking about neurological and biological, physiological. We're talking chemistry because what defines a male homo sapien from, or what at least, how do we separate through observation the male homo sapien and the female? How do we identify a female horse or a male horse? How do we genetically, you know, well, we do it through science. We do it through the observation of DNA. Right. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what's your, what preference you have towards your personal identity, gender wise, you can feel more, you can feel more feminine as a biological male and you can identify as a female, but you will never be a female. That's simply not going to, well, (laughs) this is another big, big issue Yeah. 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 because people are fighting tooth and nail for this currently. Yes. That that they they that they they demand to be identified as a female, right. when in fact biologically it's simply not accurate, and it's not personal. I don't care if you want to dress like a female, if you want boobs. I, I honestly, I, I mean, you know what I mean. Obviously, it it makes no difference to me. If you want to be called Barbara, I I, I don't care, because you have the right to identify yourself in that way, any way that makes you feel comfortable and happy, but you can never be biologically a female. The reason you can't be is simply because your DNA cannot be changed by your personal preferences. And because your DNA can't be changed by personal preference, you can't change what your DNA implies in your experience. So males will have markers that identify them, testosterone levels, hair growth due to testosterone, um, uh, certain predispositions. Perfect example is the male and female brain, different uh, size communication centers in the brain. The male brain and the female brain actually are different hmm. and have different qualities. So you you can't simply just decide. Let me say this. Deciding that you are a male when you're a female, saying I am a I am a female, let's just say I'm a female homo sapien, though you're born a male, is like saying I am a horse. It's not possible and it's not accurate. And people are very upset by this reality because they don't understand science. We've moved away from science as a base. You need a center of gravity. You need a place to have a conversation from so that we're not just talking madness. There has to be an agreed upon place that we all we have to have a shared reality so we can start having a dialogue about something. I'm with you. 
I would have probably said the commonalities we need to agree upon is the nomenclature. Just for the FYI, I mean, just to share, I, I have this thing, I've, and I've, I've actually talked about this uh, to quite a few of my guests here too. I, like, when I sing, I have a super feminine voice, and I, uh, it's, it's, I used to sing in a choir. I, I would usually take over the parts most of the female singers would sing. I'd sing alto to soprano. I'm going off on a tangent here. And I've often had experience that it's. It, I feel like I'm channeling a very feminine energy when I sing. I don't always feel like what quintessential males are supposed to feel like traditionally in music. So I can relate to that feeling of connecting to, f- to an energy that's probably not stereotypically associated with your genetically and biologically assigned gender. Could I, could I offer something? Please do, yeah. What, what you're connecting to is your memory. Humans experience reality through their memory. Everything that you're experiencing right now is through your memory. You you see the world through your past. That's one of the interesting things about cognition is that we see through memory. If you were to see through, as an example, have you eaten psilocybin or mushrooms? Um, not yet, no. I hope to soon, some point. When you Okay, so when you eat, a psychotropic, uh, it could be ayahuasca, it could be psilocybin. What it does is it shuts off that part of the brain that filters your experience through your memory. Right. And it forces you to see only the moment as it's unfolding. Hmm. And so what you're doing is you're, you're singing and you're channeling, quote unquote, the female. But if you've never in your life ever seen a female singer, if you've never heard a female singer, if you have no visual of a female singer singing, you wouldn't be channeling anything that had anything to do with a female homo sapien singing. Fair play. If the only thing you'd ever seen was males singing that part, then you would be channeling males singing that part. Fair play. So it's very important to understand how cognition works because uh, consciousness is simply – you know, it's this process of experiencing the world through the filter of what we already know about it and what we don't know about it. For you, you're channeling a female singer because you've seen female singers sing. If you'd never seen a female singer sing, if let's put it this way, if you'd only sing horses sing, you'd be singing and channeling female horses singing. Krishnamurti said this best. He said, if man were a buffalo, God would look like a buffalo. I remember that one. So if the female, if singing like a girl looked like singing like a guy, you'd be singing like a guy. Because that's what all men do. They sing high. They sing, you know, the quote unquote part of a woman. But we only say that because it's the pattern. Hmm. Um, I, I'm not sure I agree. Well, explain how you disagree. Well, that's the whole point. I mean, you got me there. Music starts for me at a point where I cannot explain anymore. And maybe that's my shortcoming. I'm completely open to that possibility, of course. But I basically start speaking a language when I start singing to express certain emotions or energies or whatever, whatever it is, the nomenclature we want to use for those, which I couldn't with conceptual language. 
But what's happening, I mean, think think of it like this. You're you're you are a human, that you're a homo sapien singing. Why are you a homo sapien singing like a female homo sapien? I don't think music uh, needs a homo sapien to exist in the first place. I feel like there might be, I'm pretty sure, in fact, that there are frequencies of music out there the whole time. All I'm doing is connecting to them when I choose to. Well, now we're, but now we're being too esoteric about it because this, this, we can't, we have to have a common ground to have the conversation from. So if we're going to talk about the fact that sound doesn't need, you know, well, first of all, you know, it, it just obviously sound doesn't even exist without something to receive it. So, I mean, we, we can just take this all the way into, you know, into the most sort of, you know, <laughs> abstract sense of, of, of possibility, but what keeps the conversation in a sort of chunkable, reasonable space is that we have a common ground to work from. So your statement was, I'm a man singing a female's part no. in my mind. Uh, not really. Well, to start off with, sound is frequency. I mean, that's something we can't agree upon, though, right? Well, yeah, but we're not really, we're talking about why a male is singing and feels that they're channeling the feminine. Well, I wouldn't pretend to be able to explain it. I mean, I have no illusions of having figured it out. That's that's kind of what I'm... Well, that's, but that's what we're... But that the point is, that's what we're figuring out. Because what we're talking about... Like, see, for me, science science requires your ability to put down what is observable and then understand it. And, it. and if you don't like that, then you could take your instruments and throw them away and you can take all the sound recording uh, equipment and throw it away because it's all been developed using that logic and reason. Because it's, it's, we can't suspend, we can't choose to suspend logic and reason when it's inconvenient for us. Oh, I agree. So the reality is all, yes, so all that's gotten us to this conversation, even the Skype app we're using, the phones we're on, it's all the product of being able to sit down and have concrete discussions about what is observable and how that can be channeled. So what we're talking about right now is the female and the male homo sapien experiencing reality through consciousness and what would cause a male homo sapien to imagine themselves expressing themselves through the feminine. And we're talking about what would, a, what would create that occurrence. And without being able to have a common point to discuss it from, then we're just basically having one of those conversations where someone goes, well, you know, um, there's a God. And I say, okay, well, how do you know that? Well, I don't have to know that. It's just faith. It's like, well, no, that's not how it works. If you introduce something, you are now responsible for demonstrating it. You, you, you have the burden of proof upon you. If you tell me that something exists that is unseen, except according by, you know, except by you, you have the burden of proof to demonstrate that it exists. If you cannot demonstrate that it exists, uh, then it either does not exist except within your imagination, or there's no way at this point, there's not a me no measuring 
device that is exists so that we can observe it. But what we can observe right now is human cognition and how it functions. So why a male would, uh, you know, hear themselves channeling a female would be because you've had experience listening and seeing and hearing female singers sing. So even your ability to identify that as female has to come from experience, which is memory or past. So we're not really talking about the the abstract nature of sound and music. We're talking about more practical, uh, you know, more sort of uh, tangible ideas, if, if that makes sense. Um, it does in a certain template. But you know what? I really, really want to pivot on some points with regards to your, your work. I went off on a tangent there um, regarding something very else. And I don't want to give you the feeling that I'm running away from the topic, but there's a whole bunch of questions with regards to your work I really, really want to pick your brain on. And I want to respect your time, so I don't want to impose. No problem, of course. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I teach. Yeah. Just so you understand, yeah. everything I teach, yes. it, we're 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 within the realm of our education platform. I'd be stoked to pick this topic up in the future again, anytime you're game. A hundred percent. I'm down. But before that, there's a wealth of information with regards to your work, which is extremely unique, which I really don't want to want my listeners to miss out on. My question was actually with regards to um, your first encounters with yoga. You talk about this quite, quite a bit in, on a multiple interviews, but I'm going to try and focus in on what, what interests me the most, how you know one community would diss the other, martial arts would diss yoga and in a certain era and the other way around. How do you balance the two, the principles of yoga and martial arts? And for our listeners, by the way, this is a gentleman who is working on his third black belt you know one black belt is a lifetime achievement and uh, Cameron here is working on his third I'm doing a shitty job of formulating what I want to <laughs> I'm sure you you'll get it flushed out I got it you'll I got it, it I got it now. I, no I got it now it's it, I always say you know you know depth is directly related to kind of like a laser focus on one thing so how did you manage to do you know you're like like the super legit yogi and a master of three martial arts. So how did he end up mastering multiple disciplines with the same level of depth? Now, how do you strike that balance between the depth and the breadth? Because it's very rare. Well, I think that the study of any craft is relatively simple because all knowledge can be reduced to formulas, patterns. That's what makes, I think that people oftentimes look at something and they feel that it's incredibly unique, but I see everything as not incredibly unique, but rather as sort of a re-impression of the most important thing for anyone who's an engineer or a scientist is that you have to see the world in patterns. And I think so a musician is the same. A musician is in essence an engineer or, or a scientist. And you have to be able to identify that if you understand the equation, the only thing left to do is be able to reinterpret, to reimagine, to rearrange. Huh. And so I don't look at anything as being incredibly unique. I see everything in the universe as a reimagined variation of 
whatever core principle that there is, because at the end of the day, reality or consciousness or the physical universe is simply animated matter. Yeah, that's beautiful. Right. And because, well, because matter is animated, it's also then arranged and organized. You learned your third martial art after your first two black belts. And here's the thing. Your teacher was Hicks and Gracie. That's like for me, okay, I play piano and bass and I'm going to go learn trumpet and let's ask Mr. Davis if he's going to pick me up. What was that experience like? Well, I just, I, I, I lucked into that. I was teaching at a karate school and at nighttime, this group of people would come in and they had these mats that they would keep stored in the corner. They were just renting space from the karate school, the teacher there. And they would then set up these mats and then they would get on the floor and they would do all this, this what appeared to be basically wrestling in geese. Hmm. And it happened to be that this was Hicks and Gracie's school. This was him. Um, he had you know, transitioned his family from where they were living originally when they moved to California to the Pacific Palisades where they were living. And then him uh, renting the school at night to hold classes in jiu-jitsu. And so, you know, it was um, it was very much just luck. I had no idea who Hicks and Gracie was uh, at the time. For real? Well, at the time... Jiu-Jitsu was not popular. Which year was this? Um, 2003. That's almost 20 years ago at this yeah. point. Yeah. So the, the popularity of Jiu-Jitsu in the past two decades, really just, it's, it's a completely different sport. At that time, it was considered part of MMA. It was, it was, Jiu-Jitsu was really understood as, as, a, as a training tool for fighting in mixed martial arts because that's how the Gracies used it. Hmm. So it, it wasn't understood as a individual martial arts system that sort of like an island it had its own sort of culture and its own sort of definable qualities that were independent of mixed martial arts because it was synonymous with mixed martial arts because in, in, in the way it was introduced to the united states through the ultimate fighting championship was here's this guy going in this ring to have this no holds bar fight in a gi mm. with these other guys and so jujitsu is a way to fight. It's a way to defend yourself or to defeat someone in combat. So it was really at that time synonymous with uh, with real combat. Then over the past 20 years, like all things, as it grew as an industry, it softened to the point where you know you can have people studying jujitsu right now who are well. Number one, they're terrible. Uh, just speaking from <laughs> just just, just to, to be you know just to take away the filter yeah. they're 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 completely novice but not just not the problem is not that they're they're inexperienced the problem is that they're uncommitted they don't care they're there for all kinds of different reasons that have nothing to do with actually becoming a black belt mm. and the way the sport was introduced and was original originally experienced is that you went in to learn to fight yeah. with this art and now you can just go do it for exercise for i mean a certain i mean there's plenty of of schools that will accommodate casual learners so may i ask you how do you feel about jujitsu being used as a form of fitness program because I think you're a fantastic person to ask because because Budokan, uh, please correct me if I say something stupid here, it has been influenced by uh, jujitsu as well. Budokan is a black belt system right. that 
integrates jujitsu and striking uh, with yoga and mobility and calisthenics right. uh, to, com- to to sort of make a complete, fully expressed system. The reason that combat is so important in order to achieve a complete movement system is that combat is the oldest movement pattern expressed by the human or the homo sapien. We, before we do anything, we do two things. We learn to locomote, but the why is more relevant than the actual fact that we locomote. Why we locomote is in order to evade or advance. You know, we're, we're either retreating or advancing. Advancing is hunting, gathering. Hmm. Retreat or evade is escape. And as an animal, we are genetically predestined to help us survive because that's what the species has to do. Right. And in order for the species to survive, it has to locomote so that it can hunt and gather and it has to. Uh, locomote so that it can evade. And now, so now that we know why we locomote, then we start asking ourselves the question, when you take children and you don't expose them to anything, why do they fight? Why do they wrestle? Why do they grab each other and pull and push? Because that's how we learn to fight. But fighting is a very sort of superficial way of saying survive. Because, I mean, without our inclination to survive, then we basically just become food for something. Mm. So we have to, in some way, use this blueprint that's been inherited from our ancestors to start the process of of movement. But movement in itself, understand, you know, because people think, oh, well, we move so we can figure skate. We move so we can snowboard. We move so we can uh, dance. No, we move so we can survive. Then we figured out how to then use movement to express these other languages or modalities. But the primary focal point of movement is combat. How important do you think it is for everyone the first in this day and age to find that connection to that side? Well, if you don't find it, you're not fully expressed. I mean, look, I'll say it like this. A woman who never has a child, she'll never experience her full destiny as a homo sapien female in terms of what she's capable of experiencing. And I'm not saying that like as an example, my wife and I decided not to have a child. So this is not said in in any way that suggests that there's a judgment about it. It's just sort of, again, I, I, I say everything from a scientific perspective. I hear you, yeah. But it's good to say that for our listeners. Yes, because someone might go, oh, well, he's suggesting that a woman's not a real woman if she doesn't have a child. Not at all. Bearing a child is part of her genetic design. And because it's part of her genetic design, it means that something about her, her has not been realized. And that's completely fine because there's nothing that implies it has to be. It's just the general design of the mechanism. Because again, if she wasn't designed that way, we could not continue as a species. Gotcha. So it's, it's you know, there's certainly no judgment about it. But think of it this way. Do you have any children? No, not that no. Okay. Okay, so yeah, exactly. Only only those uh, random Father's Day cards you get that, that don't have a name. They're just anonymous. Right, you Miss you, Dad. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, exactly. 
So I think that what we're talking about here is when you have a child, which you are designed to do, it uncovers or it, it uh, stimulates. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to find the right term that might serve best here, but it definitely triggers something within you that is potentially always that has always been there and gets to be realized and lets and lets you learn something about yourself you didn't know you didn't know. Yeah. So it's like an app that's been lying there on your desktop the whole time and all of a sudden you start using it. Was that a shitty comparison? Sorry. It's a fine comparison. It's a fine comparison. And so you think about it, if every human on the planet because, because see, the thing is, we used to have children at a much younger age. Yeah. Well, having children at a much younger age, there's there's one benefit to that, and that is that it matures you, and it sort of exposes you to responsibility, to compassion, to patience, to love. At a much younger age, it, it compels you to sort of see things in a bigger way than you know when you have a child when you're forty which is a fine too, but I'm saying the things you would have learned, you might've learned at 20, you might've learned at 18, 15, you know, cause we used to have children very young. Mm. Um, so, uh, these things now, again, you yourself are still a child, but only in today's standards, because in the olden days, <laughs> I'm sure that if you met an 18 year old from 200 years ago, they might feel different than an 18 year old from America today. Very true. So I, I think that what we're talking about is when you ask the question of how important is it to, to experience the warrior in yourself? Yes. Well, you've genetically inherited that as internal mechanism for you not to express it means there's just a part of yourself you don't know that you didn't know that you didn't know. You know, It's just that, that paradigm. So I'm depriving myself of a meaningful experience. The same thing I would say to you if you asked me, should everyone learn an instrument? Yeah, I'm with you, Matt. Which is a great way to taper off with my last question. Something I find fascinating and extremely inspiring in your practice is how you unite the warrior and the monk. How do you uh, integrate these two sides to your life? Well, it's pretty straightforward. I see them as complementary qualities, mm -hmm. not contradictory, which is how a lot of people see martial arts and yoga. They say, what do these two things have to do with each other? They seem completely contrary to one another, and they seem to, in fact, contradict each other. Mm -hmm. And I say, well, they don't actually. And here's why. The feminine balances the masculine. The passion must be tempered by reason and logic. Mm -hmm. All of these qualities that exist in the universe, for the depth, there must be the height, you know, the breath. And you and I understand this, and so does, so does the listener. It's, it's basically obvious. It's not something you have to walk someone to, hand-holding them. So we understand that depth defines height, and we understand that this space, you know, is, you know, empty space is balanced by matter. There has to be both. So I think that what we're talking about with martial arts and yoga, or the peacemaker and the warrior, is that there must be a complement to man's desire to rage. Uh, man is inclined to be violent. Mm. And because we're inclined to be violent, 
and whether it's through our words or our actions, I mean, people are violent by nature. Uh, violence is something we have inherited, again, as a way to protect ourselves from being eaten. You know, if, if, if something's attacking you, you have to be violent. Mm. It's not a choice. It's a response that is a gift from nature. If something's attacking your children, you have to be violent yeah. to fight for them. Now, of course, you, you, could, you could just simply sacrifice yourself. I once saw a baby antelope crossing a river in Africa, and uh, the, a crocodile started a- after it, and the mother cut a line between the crocodile oh, and the baby, basically just sort of sacrificing her herself oh, for, you know, this is a choice. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it, it, I say choice. Obviously, she didn't think to herself, well, is this a great idea or not a great idea? Yeah, I hear you. Her I, I'm inst- out of elephants yeah. doing the same, too. Right. Mm. The, the instinct is to uh, save the offspring at whatever cost. Yeah. Um, so we know that animals fight to protect their young. So violence is something that is inherent in us, and it's important that it's there because it's how we survive. Then you take peace, which is also inherent in us. We prefer uh, a state of tranquility. We prefer calmness, stillness, uh, because I think it's our natural sort of resting point. Our center of gravity is not chaos. Our center of gravity is stillness. And chaos is how stillness continues to have a place to return to. Just looking at the earth, weather is the chaos and the earth is the stillness. You know what I'm saying? If, if just metaphorically, you know what I Absolutely. mean? Right. So I think that the yogi and the warrior are all are just simple reflections of all of that. And it's very easy for me to make peace with that. Um, and so I don't see them as contradictory at all. I see them as a compliment and a, and, and a necessary thing. To be a great yogi means that I must understand my own violence. To, to really be, and I say great as, as if you could measure that <laughs> through, through something so um, limited, but to be a fully expressed and maybe we're never fully expressed, but to get there on to get closer to that idea is to understand both sides. One thing about yoga as a physical practice is its inclination to take us in the direction of hyper flexibility and you know how much we can let go and how much we can quote unquote you know lengthen how much uh, space we can create. Well, Martial arts is about taking space away. So true. Wow. Yeah. It's right. It's about contraction. It's about containment. It's the very opposite of that. So you you don't understand your body completely when your entire focus is on this idea. You there's a whole other part of you that needs to get expressed, but couldn't possibly find that expression purely in stretching. I'm talking about asana right now. I don't want to reduce yoga to uh, just a physical practice. Thanks for that. Yeah. Then we're talking about, okay, how does the singular quality of yoga, the physical practice, how could it be imbalanced by hyper-focusing on flexibility? Where is stamina? Where is stability? Uh, Where is endurance? Where is agility? Where is timing, rhythm, you know, movement in essence? So when these guys invented yoga 
posturally, they weren't thinking of it that way. They were just working off of a model. And if you take any model and work off of it and don't question the model in terms of the why, let me retract that. Let's say that the why is to be able to sit and be still and be quiet, and this is what's helping us do that, then you're achieving that. But if the why is so that I can become a fully expressed homo sapien animal in my body, I can feel my completeness, it does not address that. I don't think that was its original why. I think its original why was to help me sit and be still and be quiet for a longer period of time. Yeah, so it said... What gets you to the essence of each is to sort of understand the why behind each and then be willing to look at like dance is about freedom of expression. It's not about controlled patterns. Martial arts is about controlled, isolated, perfected patterns designed to contain and take space away. Dance is about creating space it's about chaos. It's about freedom. Beautiful. It doesn't want to have a pattern that it has to be beholden to, though that's what it can become. I mean, look at the ballet. And so it takes away what contemporary dance sort of uh, brings to the table, which is freedom of expression. And where ballet was, you know, ballet was very strict and very specific and very choreographed. So contemporary was sort of a rebellion against that idea. Yeah, that makes total sense. Yeah, so, so I, but yoga, it has become a song with the chorus and a verse, and it's very specific, and here your, here are your postures, and here's how it's done. I couldn't have thought of a better analogy. And so what happens is, after a while, people want improvisation in their yoga practice, and I tend to get those people. They come, mobility, Budokan, uh, we have our own patterns, but then learning patterns is learning structure. As you would say as a musician, I need to teach you the chords. You need to understand these uh, progressions, you need to the scales. And But now, once you've learned that, I need you to start being creative with it. Balancing those two is a very, very rich and beautiful experience of just understanding the two qualities and where they intersect and then finding those commonalities and focusing on them and then just developing them so that the yogi in our system understands their martial arts through their yoga and their yoga through their martial arts. Beautiful, man. Uh, that's so fucking inspiring. Well, I'm so glad that you, you, you appreciate it, brother. Some people have the intellectual capacity to sit and really tease apart all of these subtle you know, differences. And some people, you know, just want to work out. Two very different people. I can relate to it from personal experiences myself. I mean, obviously, my practice is nowhere near proficiency of yours, but um, I've been practicing yoga since I, I can't remember. I, I generally don't remember when I started doing yoga. I always missed exuding the energy against something external like that, the, the counterbalance to constantly going inside of me. At some point, I looked for my counterbalance in lifting weights and obviously, especially in the earlier years, that didn't go well either. So I was stuck in the middle. To pivot back to what you said, I, I genuinely felt the lack of connecting to that animal side of me, which has also been carrying this DNA. I felt the need to be capable to defend myself, even though I'm like, I'm probably the shittiest 
student in my dojo, but just going there and knowing that I'm spending my time investing in trying to connect to that side of me, the degree of peace it gives me is definitely proof for all of what he just said. Well, I hope that this conversation can in some way contribute to your practice moving forward and have some you know, value and benefit. Oh, absolutely, man. I've been binging on your uh, material for a while now. Well, I, I appreciate that. I hope that our conversation in general, there, there, there's a huge part of this conversation that can be interpreted as esoteric and quite mystic. And, and, and I try to keep things in a tangible, graspable, touchable way before people so that they can wrestle with ideas as much as sometimes we just want to feel without trying to define or describe or deconstruct or dissect. It's incredibly powerful to be able to explain how you feel. Whether you want to exercise that skill or not, the ability to do it is what I'm advocating for. I completely agree with you. Yeah, that's what's really important. Is yeah, I love your uh, I love your link on your website, which is please waste more of your limited time on planet Earth by following me on my social media. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah, loved it. I by the way, for my listeners, if you haven't checked out his webpage, I mean, uh, the page on um, the hard facts, those quotations around each of those, they're all gold nuggets. Uh, I loved going through them. I, I appreciate you. You know, enjoying that, brother. I really do. Thank you for the, thanks for the beautiful conversation and the time and the great questions. Really beautiful, beautiful dialogue. And I could go on forever. You caught me off guard with some of these topics uh, you started talking about regarding frequency and music. I'd love to pick that up um, sometime in the future uh, when I'm a little bit better prepared. I mean, I I, I submitted completely. You, you had me. Uh, and um, I, I just couldn't deliver. But uh, I really sincerely appreciate you coming on and uh, just being so open to this conversation. And um, it's just an honor of the highest order, man. Oh, man, I feel the same way. Really beautiful questions and, and holding a beautiful space. Very much appreciate the way your mind works. You know, it's very, very inspiring to be interviewed by someone and have a conversation with someone who is well thought out and intelligent and, and, and interested in more than superficial, uh, which just basically is, is a testament to the research and genuine effort you've put into actually understanding what I do rather than just seeing it as a soundbite and saying, oh, okay, you put yoga and martial arts together. So, you know, how is that? And oh, you trained Jennifer Aniston. What was that like? <laughs> which is, I couldn't tell you how many times I've had that conversation well i gotta confess it was on the list of my questions but it was kind of down the bottom <laughs> yeah, yeah good i, I was yes. curious about your hollywood experience and everything we'll do that in interview too well i believe it's a testament to your work man i mean it just demands that kind of attention and uh, investigation it's just a fascinating and the amount of dedication and investment you put in there it's i feel like you're making history and uh, it's it's just been an honor to have a chance to kind of dig in deep the way I, you just let me today. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. Oh, gosh. Thank you, brother. From the bottom of my heart, I'm in deep gratitude to you and in deep appreciation for who you are and what you're doing in the world. So thank you very much. Gratitude from the bottom of my heart for listening to the very end. Please consider taking a minute to subscribe to our show so you know when the next episode is out. 
This is a labor of love, one I hope snowballs into one that's sustainable in its attempt to support independent thought and authentic relating. While having you as a regular member of our audience is what makes that a realistic prospect. Much love, talk soon. Just another voice out in.